Good morning. Our Psalter reading is from Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. This passage can be found on page 514 of the Bibles we provide. We invite the children to join us by looking on page 92 of the children's Bibles. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, and can be found on page 1023 in the Bibles we provide. We invite the children to turn to page 196 of the children's Bible. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. We'll be looking this morning at the Gospel according to Matthew. We return to a study of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We look at chapter 5, beginning uh, with verse 17. We'll read down through 20, and then I'm going to skip to the end of chapter 5 and read that final uh, passage, beginning with verse 43. But this rest of this chapter is all of a piece, as I hope will become clear. Jesus is speaking. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus illustrates this six times, talks about what this means by saying, you've heard that it is said, but I say to you, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then his final one of those contrasts begins in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The gospel of Christ. Yeah, a little tepid. Just imagine, imagine if your father and mother said, look, I only expect one thing of you. It's all I expect. Just be perfect. As I am perfect. You see, only, only the Lord can get away with that one. But what does it mean? And why is it good news? And what does this mean for gospel people? That's what I want us to try to understand this morning. Jesus, as we saw, gave these beautiful beatitudes, eight of them with the ninth beatitude, the final one being an application, turning it and saying, blessed are you when these things happen to you. Then, as we saw when I was last with you a couple of weeks ago, that he said, look, this is why your life is to be as countercultural as these beatitudes indicate because you're the salt of the earth. And salt mustn't lose its savor. If it loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to throw it out, trample it underfoot. You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, he's now going to begin to tell us what it means to be salt and light in the world. What does it look like? He's describing what it means to be the family of God, the people of God. Isn't it interesting that the moment he wants to tell us what our lives are to look like, he goes to the law. And it's caused so much consternation among Christians who misunderstand the whole nature of the law in Scripture and its relationship to grace. In fact, there was a whole school of Bible teaching, most popular school among evangelicals when I grew up, called dispensationalism. Its best vehicle of transport was the Schofield Reference Bible and later the Ryrie Bible. And basically, it bracketed the Sermon on the Mount and said, this isn't for this age. This is for kingdom age, but not gospel, it's law. Boy, I mean, the intent of these people was wonderful, and most of them really sought to live the Sermon on the Mount, but it was excruciatingly bad theology. Because Jesus' whole point, as he says, is anyone who relaxes one of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom, and those who do them and teach them will be called great. And he will end the sermon by saying, you're either like a person who builds on a rock because you are hearing my words and seeking to do them, or you're like a person building on sand because you've heard this sermon and you're setting it aside and saying, it's not for me, it's not for today, it's law, I'm under grace. I'm not. It's a total misunderstanding. And as I come toward the end of my public ministry, one of the reasons that I really wanted one more time to go through the Sermon on the Mount with you is because I believe that the relation of law and grace is one of the most massively misunderstood issues 
with, among biblical Christians, people who seriously want to do God's will. So I'm taking one last crack at teaching you what I think is true of this, and which, of course, is true. You know. <laughs> uh, I modestly claim. Uh, no, I think that if you just trace biblical theology, you'll see that there's no radical disjunction. Let me say a word for my dispensational brothers and sisters, because I know there are many of you who've been raised in that and taught it. I was raised in it, taught it. My parents were Moody uh, grads. Who uh, My dad was a preacher. He taught from this. Godly man, my best teacher. But here's the difference, I think, between... And, and those of you who haven't a clue what these terms mean, just give us 30 seconds to talk among ourselves. Um, the difference between a dispensational view and a covenantal view is this. Dispensationalism sees, breaks the Bible, breaks salvation history into a series of dispensations or economies where God did this and then it was shown that that was, would not lead in the end to salvation and he stops and he initiates a new dispensation. Whereas covenantalism sees each of God's dealings as being fulfilled in the next chapter. So I explain it like this. Dispensationalism sees engagement and marriage like this. We were engaged and it had its benefits, but in the end it failed us, so we broke the engagement and got married. Covenantal theology, the right view, <laughs> says we were engaged to be married. Our engagement was great, but it couldn't fulfill what we longed for. It had to be fulfilled in marriage. Marriage is the covenant that fulfills the engagement. Okay, come back, come back. So why do I go through all of this? Because the idea of too many people is Israel, the old covenant people, were under law. Now we're under grace. Israel's history showed that that's not how you were saved, so we're under grace. As I tried to say when I was with you last, grace always precedes law, not the other way around, as is usually taught. For example, when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he did not send Moses down into Israel and say, here are the Ten Commandments, give these to the people, and if they keep them, I'll save them. That would be law, salvation by law. God heard the cry of his people in their distress. He redeemed them out of bondage when he'd brought them out, when he had saved them. Grace. He then said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, you're my people. You're my family. This is how we live in my family. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. The Ten, they're not even called commandments in the Old Testament. They're called the Ten Words. In other words, this is how we live. This is how we do it here. So Jesus here is going back and correcting a misunderstanding on the part of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the most excruciatingly careful religious people perhaps the world had ever seen. I mean, they did everything to keep the rules, to please God, to be a holy people separate unto God. And Jesus turns around and says, unless you're righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so again, many teachers say he's got to be talking about 
the righteousness that he gives us that we receive by faith. Those of you doctrinally inclined, justification. This sermon is not about justification. This sermon is to the already justified. It's about sanctification. It's saying this is how we live in the family of God. This is how your Father wants you to live. He wants you to be like Him. So there are really two things that I want to try to do in the remaining time. Just two questions. First, how did Jesus, who said, I've not come to abolish but to fulfill the law and the prophets, what did he mean? How did he do that? And in what sense, when he said, until all is accomplished, in what sense has it been accomplished? And in what sense is it not yet accomplished? So that's the Jesus question. How was he salt and light? How did he come and, and fulfill not abolish. Secondly, how are we to be salt and light? What does he teach us here about how we are to live and how in the world can he say, this is all you've got to do, just be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect? What is that about? So, first of all, how did he fulfill the law? Always remember when you're dealing with New Testament discussions about the law, there were three laws in Israel. One of them was the civil law. It's, lots of it is found in the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch, the first five books. For example, if you had a flat roof, the law of Israel was you had to build a parapet or a little fence around it so that if somebody was up there, they didn't fall off. See, OSHA was even, you know, back then in Israel. And lots of laws of that sort. They were the laws of Israel living together as a nation. The New Testament, none of that applied anymore because Israel had been defeated. It was under Roman occupation. Before that, it had been defeated by the Greeks. All of that was gone. So it's not talking when they talk about law, about the civil law. Secondly, there was ceremonial law. That had to do with how you dressed, whom you married, how you worshipped, what you ate, all the laws of temple sacrifice, everything related to being visibly a member of the Old Covenant community, circumcision, eating kosher, whom you could eat with, whom you couldn't eat with. That is what Paul inveighed against. When Paul said, you're not under law, stop going back to law, he wasn't talking about the moral law, he wasn't talking about the Ten Commandments. The problem he was dealing with was that Jewish teachers were coming from Jerusalem and telling Gentile believers, you've got to become Jews in order to be Christians. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to eat kosher. You've got to now come into Israel before you can be part of the people of God. So when Paul sounded like he was against law, he wasn't talking about the Ten Commandments. He wasn't talking about the moral law, about how we live. He was talking about the ceremonial law. And he fulfilled that, or, or rather Jesus had fulfilled that. He fulfilled it by becoming our sacrifice. He was the perfect Israelite who came and kept the law perfectly, though as we'll see in a moment, not the way that the scribes and Pharisees understood. They misunderstood the law. They saw it as we do this, we're made righteous. He said, no, because you're living at the surface of things. You're being religious instead of understanding what the law is about. But once Jesus had offered himself as the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices, all of the temple worship, that was abolished, that was gone. And providentially, 
the Romans came in in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, and it's never been there. And I always cringe when I hear Christians say, if only Israel would take hold of the Temple Mount and go up and rebuild the temple. No, the author of Hebrews tells us that's over. It's done. The blood of bulls and goats cannot avail against sin. That was a picture. It had its time. It's gone. Our sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And there, he fulfilled it. And it's over, that part of the law. So two parts of the three of the law are gone. But never, never, the law of God when it comes to the moral law. Why? Because the moral law the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, rightly understood, are not a yoke or a list of rules to be born. They are rather an answer to the question, if I am to love the Lord my God and if I'm to love other people, what does that look like? What does, what does it mean to love God? And so the first five commandments are pictures of what it looks like to love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you're not going to have other gods. You're not going to make idols that look like the creation and worship the creature rather than the creator. You're not going to take the name of God and use it as an oath and abuse it. You're not going to scorn this precious gift that he's given us of one day out of seven to rest from our labors and to gather together and worship him. You're going to keep that Sabbath. And fifthly, you're going to honor your mother and father because it was through them that God gave you life. And if they've done their job, it's from them that you first learned about him. They stood in God's place. Then what does it look like to love my neighbor? Well, if I'm going to love my neighbor, I can't take his life. I can't take his wife or her husband. I can't take his stuff. I can't take his reputation. None of those are loving acts. That's the Ten Commandments. And finally, don't covet. Don't sit back and look and say, I wish I had his wife. I wish I had his house. I wish I had his life. Why didn't I get all of that? And what Jesus is doing in these six illustrations is digging underneath the superficial religious view of what it means to be holy and righteous. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't, that's the religious view. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand the law. You don't see the picture. Murder starts in the heart. Murder starts down deep when you let yourself begin to think about a person and wish that something bad would happen to that person. Wish they'd get what they deserve. Wish that it was payback time. Hope that God is really watching and going to get them. Jesus said, if you're like that, murder has already found home in your heart. Adultery isn't just getting into bed with your neighbor. Adultery is sitting there and thinking about it and wishing and fantasizing and imagining. Let me say one word, one of Martin Luther's wisest words in his table talk. He was asked by a tormented young man, you know, how do I keep from thinking things? I mean, I see a beautiful woman and I, I think something. And Luther so wisely said, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making nests in your hair. Jesus is talking 
about making, letting the birds make nests in our hair, sit and, oh, I'm going to just get alone and think about this a bit. And right on through, you just go through this. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying the law is about the heart. The law is about love. It's not about being religious. It's not about people looking and saying, oh my goodness, what a good person. No, it is to be an expression of life-giving, loving response to God and then letting his love. That beautiful song, I'd never sung that nor heard it before, but I could hardly get through it. I thought, it just, it's so simple and yet it touched my heart so much. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Jesus is talking to people who realize how much their Father loves them and who want that love given to them, not while they were friends, not while they were seeking him, not while they were pursuing him, given when we were enemies, says the scripture, while we were running away pursuing our own ends. He poured out his love on us. He's so good to us. And what Jesus is doing is simply saying, that's what this is all about. Go underneath this superficial religious view of things, the rules thing. And I grew up in that. Thank God I had loving family that was able to balance it out. But we were part of one of those groups. I, I remember here. I'd hear this kind of a thing, the church folk talking. You know, he's really, really a lovely man. And so compassionate and does so many good things for people. And, you know, he studies the word. I know he prays. I, I mean, he professes Christ. But the man's a smoker. You know, stuff like that. You just go, good, good. You know, even as a kid, I remember thinking, oi vey, you know. Get a life. Good grief. You nasty people. <laughs> I like him. Don't like you. So Jesus is saying, dig under all that rules approach and realize how deeply loved you are. And what I'm calling you to is this. And that explains the final word when he says, here it is. You've heard that it was said. And by the way, Jesus is teaching totally differently than the scribes and Pharisees. They taught by giving a, 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 like a legal example and saying, you've heard that it was said, and I, all that I'm saying to you agrees with this. And that's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, the people have been listening and they go, he teaches as one with authority, not like our scribes. Why did they say that? Because he'd take what they'd heard, but say, you haven't understood it. It's so much deeper, but I say. Comes the final one and says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your friends, hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who mistreat you. Now, if you've gone back and looked where Moses wrote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Moses did not go on to say, but hate your enemies. So you may say, where's Jesus get that? Well, he's putting the call to love in the context of the whole old scripture. Uh, Old Testament scripture, where, for example, in the Psalms, David will be writing this beautiful psalm, you know, about, oh, I love the Lord, and he heard me in my distress, he heard my cry, he lifted me up, he's poured out his love on me, he's forgiven me. I want to kill those enemies of yours, Lord. I do I not despise them and hate them? And Jesus is saying, no, 
No. You are to love your enemy as, Christ, as God in me has loved you, come to you, to redeem you. It is love that is to be the note, and that doesn't mean you necessarily like them or feel good about them or want to be with them. To love means to will the good of the other as other. To will the good of that person so that I don't sit here and think, I hope he gets what he deserves. Instead, I'm thinking, if I had gotten what I deserved, I'd be lost. And I hope that this person who's causing me so much pain right now will nonetheless taste and see the reality of God's grace, know full forgiveness, and be transformed by it. Whether it ever touches me or not, I hope for his sake, for her sake, that there'll be a transformation of life. And that, Jesus says, is when you are really approaching the family resemblance of God-likeness. Because God not only loves those who love him, he loves his enemies. Jesus, as he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the thing. That's why he would say, be perfect the way your heavenly Father is perfect. It has reference to forgiving and loving and caring for even those who've made your life a misery. And he wants us to grow into that. One illustration and I'm done. I, I had a wonderful time the last almost two weeks. I finally got to go to Norway. You all have let me travel around the world. And of course, my dad's roots over in North Carolina. I grew up with all that, yada, 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 just ad nauseum. You know, the, the pre-revolutionary Southern family. But I was always intrigued by my mother's side. Her parents had come from Norway. But of course, we never talked about that. They were immigrants. So I've always wanted to go to Norway and finally got to go. And the first part of the trip, my oldest uh, child, my daughter Rachel, and her middle child, Asher, who wants to be a Viking when he grows up, came <laughs> with me. And God poured snow on the whole country. It was glorious. It was everything we dreamed. It was wonderful. I got back midnight Friday night, and I'm still on Norway time. So uh, last night or this morning, I... By 3, 3.30, I couldn't go back to sleep, so I thought I'd get up. Went downstairs, and I remembered that my sister-in-law, Jim's wife, Susan, had sent me a thumb drive. Susan and Jim have most of the family picture albums, and she'd gone through and put together to music the, the story of my mother and her family, the story of my father and his, our story of them coming together. And I sat there this morning just watching that, played out to beautiful music and watched my great-grandparents, my grandparents on both sides coming together, young, dating, married, growing old, growing ancient. And then the next generation, my parents. I'd forgotten how beautiful my mother was. I remember her as an old woman, almost 100. She died at 99. I looked, and I just wept. She was so beautiful. And Alicia Keys type beautiful. She never wore makeup. I think she wore lipstick the first time when she was in her 50s. My sister got her to put some on. Just exquisitely beautiful woman. And so my dad, this, the, North, the southern boy who'd gone up Chicago area, met her. And I just, these pictures of them, dating and young newlyweds. And I see him just, looking at her, 
like, I can't believe it. And it's the same way he always looked at her, even as he lay dying. And I thought of the legacy of love in this family and what a beneficiary I am. And I saw in these pictures then my siblings and me go from childhood to old age. Just in a moment. Our lives are a vapor. They're here for a moment. And we pass. But I wanted to stand up and just cry out with my gratitude to God for such a legacy. I thought of my father. He's a good, good father. It's who he was. It's who he was. And I always knew that I was loved. It's who I am. It's who I am. And what Jesus is saying is in the midst of a world where so many families are a mess and where it's people haven't known that kind of love and have never really felt that they had any value at all, he's saying, this is how I've loved you. This is how I want my family to love this world. Even those who are trying to be your enemies, even those who are trying to mess up your life, this is what I want it to look like. It's not about earning it. It's been given. You are my child. Be my child. He says, when you do this, you'll be like your father who is in heaven. Don't you want that? I'll tell you, every murderer wants his neighbors to be the friendliest, most nonviolent people in the world. Everybody who commits adultery or who steals wants all of his neighbors to excruciatingly carefully keep the Ten Commandments. Everybody wants us all to live like that. Why? Because we know that it's the way of life. Jesus says to his children, do it so they can see who I am. Do it so that they will know how much I love them.